0: All right. Let's talk. Let's talk about a young fella. He's in high school. He's got his first date with a girl from his English class later this evening. And so on his way home from school, he stops by the local candy store and he tells the man working behind the counter, he says, I need a $5 box of chocolates, I need a $10 box of chocolates, and I need a $20 box of chocolates. And, uh, and the guy says, all right, well, that's good. And as he's ringing him up, he, he says, well, what are you going to do with these boxes of chocolates? And he says, well, I've got a date tonight, and I'm going to give my date a box of chocolates. If she, if she doesn't give me a hug or anything like that, she gets a $5 box of chocolates. She gives me a hug, she gets a $10 box of chocolates. And if she gives me a kiss, she gets a $20 box of chocolates. The man behind the counter says, well, that's certainly an interesting idea. Well, the boy goes home. He doesn't think anymore about that guy. He goes home. He takes a shower. Trims his fingernails, right? Picks out exactly the right clothes. Whole nine yards, right? Six o'clock, he goes to his date's house. He knocks on the door. Girl's dad opens the door, and he says, hey, we thought it would be nice for you to come in and have dinner with us tonight instead of you guys going out. I know you had plans, but you can do that. Another time, the movie will be on us. Just come on in and have dinner with us. And so the boy goes in, and uh, the, the dad says, you know, at our table, it's customary to begin with prayer, and so would you would you have the prayer for our meal this evening? And the boy just prays his heart out, right? I mean, this is a prayer. Jesus says, you know, don't let people compliment you on your prayers, but I think even Jesus would have complimented. This was a good prayer, right? And so he gets done with his prayer, and, and his date squeezes his hands. She said, I had no idea you were such an eloquent prayer. And he said, I had no idea your dad owned the candy store. Have you ever done have you ever done something that just makes you cringe to think about it? Ugh. One of those things where, I mean, you are 10, 20 years removed from this event and you still just, uh, you don't even like to think about it now. Have you ever done something like that? Maybe it's kind of funny, like the like the young fella in that joke, or, or maybe it's something a little bit more serious. Maybe you've hurt somebody and all these years later it still makes you cringe just to think about it. For me, some of the, some of the worst things that I think about in this way are uh, the times when I was in high school or shortly after high school and I lied to my parents but not just that I lied to my parents, but they believed the lies that I told them because they trusted me so much. And that hurts to think about it. They didn't even question what I was saying because they trusted me, and it turns out I wasn't trustworthy. That hurts. The truth is we all have sin that's damaged us. And we all have sin that's damaged the people around us. And the reason I bring this up is because if we're going to find forgiveness for our sins, we have to be able to deal with the emotion of our sins. That cringe factor, you get that guilt, that searing pain, when you think about the people that you love, that you've hurt, we have to be able to deal with that if We're going to find forgiveness for our sins, and that's exactly where Saul of Tarsus finds himself at this point in our story. This is a third week in a sermon series called Paul, a real life conversion story, and we're looking at the conversion of Paul, how it relates to our lives, the lessons that we can learn from Paul's conversion story. And so far, we've seen that according to the Jewish world, Saul of Tarsus was a big deal he was the man by every measure he was a great man he was an important man he was wise he was talented he was zealous for his faith he was a great man according to the Jewish faith and last week we learned that when he found himself in the presence of Jesus none of those things mattered none of those things mattered at all and Saul became painfully aware of his sin if we're going to find forgiveness of our sins we've got to be able to deal with the emotion of our sins. Let's take a look at this text Acts chapter 9 and we will get going. So meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and he was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way that he found there. And he wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. And as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him, and and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one that you were persecuting. Get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. So that's all recap. Let's see how Saul responds. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they'd heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. And Saul picked him up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand into Damascus, and he remained there blind for three days. And he did not eat or drink. If we're gonna find forgiveness of our sins, we have to be able to deal with the emotion of our sins. That's what this sermon's about today. How do we handle that guilt, that sorrow, regret? How do we deal with that? We have to. And it's an important question because some people. Some people are so consumed by those emotions, by that guilt, by that regret, by that pain, by that, by that nagging fear that somebody will find out about what happened. Some people have been so consumed by those emotions that they never forgive themselves. And that's dangerous because when you never forgive yourself, you never believe that God can forgive you. You hear that? When you never forgive yourself, you never believe that God can forgive you. Some people are consumed by these emotions. That's one side of the coin. The other side is this. Instead of dealing with emotion, and maybe, maybe it's true that the males of our species are more prone to do this, we just ignore, isolate, set aside put aside, don't deal with it. Maybe if we just leave it alone for long enough, those feelings will go away. We're just not going to deal with emotion in any way. We're going to compartmentalize. We're going to get a storage locker for our emotions and we're going to put it in the very back in a fireproof box and maybe in 50 years we'll come back and deal with those emotions. That's a problem. That's dangerous because... The more we suppress things, the more we ignore things, the more we suppress things, the better we get at suppressing things. That's a problem because some of the things you'll be suppressing are warning signs from God that you're going in the wrong direction. The more you ignore it, the easier it gets to ignore. Imagine you have a fire alarm going off in your house. That's something that gets your attention, isn't it? That gets your attention. You realize that you have to take action immediately. But what if your fire alarm was broken and it was continually going off? First of all, you'd move, right? You'd burn your own house down so you didn't have to deal with it. But, um, but if the fire alarm was just continually going off forever and ever and ever, eventually, you'd get to the point where you didn't notice it. All of a sudden, if there is a fire, you have no way of recognizing that there's really danger. The better we get at suppressing emotion, the easier it is to suppress emotion. And a lot of times, our emotion is a warning sign from God that we're headed in the wrong direction. So we have to deal. We have to deal with the emotion of our sin. And that's what, that's what today's about. As I was studying this text, I was struck by the similarity between Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus and Jonah. I'm familiar with the story of Jonah, prophet from God. God says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to tell these people to repent of their sins. And Jonah says, listen, the Ninevites are vile people. They are disgusting. They are cruel. They are wicked. And I don't want to do that, God. And so Jonah runs away. And there's so much similarity between these two stories. Think about it. Both men were zealous for God. Saul worked hard as a rabbi. Jonah was a prophet. Both men were well respected in their time. Both of them had a terrible misunderstanding of what it meant to serve God. Both of them wanted to kill a group of people because they were threats to the Jews. Both of them had miraculous encounters. Both of them spent three days thinking about things in dark places. But here's the major difference. Jonah knew he was running from God. Jonah knew he was running from God. Saul thought he was honoring God. So Jonah was not surprised when he's on a boat and a giant storm shows up out of nowhere. Jonah knew what was going on. He wasn't surprised by this. But when Saul hears, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not only is it terrifying, it's surprising in the worst possible way. Now there's different kinds of surprises, right? There's good surprises. You get your paycheck and you are surprised because you forgot there was going to be a little bit of overtime on it. That's not this kind of surprise. This is the kind of surprise where you go to work and you're surprised because your company is downsizing and your position is no longer necessary. That's the kind of surprise Saul of Tarsus experiences today on the road to Damascus. And this surprise gives way to terror, which ultimately gives way to sorrow. Verse 9 tells us he remained there blind for three days, and he did not eat or drink. And we don't have a lot of information. We don't have a lot of information about what Saul did. We know that he didn't eat. We know that he didn't drink. For three days while he was in Damascus. The only other little bit of information that we have comes from verse 11. It tells us that he was spending time praying. He was praying to God. And I don't know what Saul prayed. I don't know what Saul prayed, but I do know what Jonah prayed. And I'd like to share that with you because I suspect there would be similarities between their two prayers. I think Jonah's prayer is going to give us some insight into what we do when we're brought low before a holy God. So here's Jonah chapter 2. I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble and He answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead and Lord, you heard me. You threw me into the ocean depths and I sank down to the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath Your wild and stormy waves. Then I said, O Lord, You have driven me from Your presence, yet I will look once more toward Your holy temple. I sank beneath the waves and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head and I sank down to the very roots of the mountain. I was imprisoned in the earth. Whose gates lock shut forever, but you, O Lord my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord, and my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple. What do we learn from this prayer? What do we learn from this prayer? We learn that sorrow has a place in conversion. There is a place for sorrow in conversion, and here's its place. Sorrow for sin is the first evidence of repentance. Sorrow for sin is the first evidence of repentance. Let's talk about that a little bit. First of all, uh, what is repentance? That's a good Bible word, right? If you want to impress your friends over lunch or you know, have a good word to use in Sunday school next week, let's talk repentance. Uh, I was taught this, repentance is a change of mind and a change of action resulting from a godly sorrow for sin, making restitution where possible. So some of you are in the military, and and there are certain commands where you just know what to do, right? And, and that response is indelibly burned into your mind. Gareth Reese burned the definition of repentance into my skull, and I will never forget it. But let's bring it down to a more practical level. Uh, Let's say it in a different way. Repentance is when our understanding of God begins to change our actions. Repentance is when our understanding of God begins to change our actions. You remember the kid who bought the three boxes of candy? We'll call him Luke. (laughs) When he realized who the girl's father was, was, he was very quickly uncomfortable. He became uncomfortable with his actions. All of a sudden, he'd do anything in the world To make it right. Or maybe you've had this experience. Um, You watch a movie with a group of friends, and you think it's just the best movie you've ever seen in your life. It is funny. It is just really good. And so you go home and you say to your parents, mom, dad, we've got to watch this movie. It's the best movie I've ever seen in my life. You're going to love it. This is such a good movie. And they agree. They're excited about the movie. And you turn on, but boy, I sure don't remember all this language when I watched it before with my friends. Certainly don't remember that scene. Is it hot in here? And then the movie is all of a sudden very different when you're with your parents than it was when you were with a group of friends. And in that moment, you would do anything to change it. Where you spent your whole life. You spent your whole life thinking that something's okay. And then you begin to study the Word of God and you start to think, well, maybe, maybe the Bible doesn't Think so highly of the way that I've been living. Maybe what I've been doing is wrong. Maybe God doesn't think this is okay. And all of a sudden, do anything to change it. That's what happened to Saul. He thought he was doing exactly what God wanted him to do. And when he learned that he wasn't, his understanding of God immediately began to change his actions. That's repentance. That's repentance. It's not not a commitment to perfection, it's a commitment to change because we now understand what God says. The Bible makes it very clear that repentance is something God takes seriously. In Acts chapter 2, when the people learned that they had celebrated the death of Jesus and rejoiced over it, they felt sorrow and they asked Peter, and they said, What should we do? Peter said, Repent. Repent and be baptized. And so sorrow for our sins, a feeling of grief over our sins, a feeling of regret over our sins is the first evidence of repentance. Now let's talk about sorrow. Sorrow is our indication that something's wrong. It's our indication that, that something is amiss. Something is out of line here and we need to look at it. So imagine uh, you're hammering a nail. I couldn't think of a better illustration for this, so you're stuck with this one. Uh, so imagine you're hammering a nail and, and you're doing it wrong. You, you're terrible at hammering nails. Every nail you hammer goes in like this, right? and you are just terrible at it, you'll have a little bit of an indication that, that something's wrong, but let's say, let's say you're terrible at hammering in nails in a different way. You just keep missing the nail, right? And because you're not paying attention, you're looking around seeing what other people are doing, you're not going to know that you need to change until you smash your finger. This is a terrible illustration. Deal with it, okay? Not all illustrations are perfect. Uh, we have to know that something needs to change before we begin to change it. Sorrow for sin is our indication that something needs to change. So, in in college, I used to I used to talk to guys all the time, um, and they would come into my room, and they would just be distraught over something or other in their lives, and you know maybe it was anger. Um, maybe they uh, weren't taking their studies as seriously as they should have and they had a wake-up call on a test or or maybe they got in a fight with their girlfriend or fiance or, or maybe they were dealing with a lust issue and these guys would come in come into my room and a lot of times they would just be so distraught over what was going on over the sin that was in their lives that they would just start crying in my room and the conversation would always start the same for me I'd say listen I'm not going to tell you that what you're doing is right. But I am going to tell you that it's a good thing. I'm going to tell you it's a good thing that you're convicted about this. That you're here. That you're confessing this. That it, that it, brings, uh, that it brings a sorrow to you. Because if it, didn't, if it didn't bother you at all, it would tell me that God didn't have the proper place in your life. That you weren't concerned about what God thought. So the fact that you are bothered by this is a good thing. You see, sorrow for sin is the first evidence of repentance. Now the question is, what do we do with that sorrow? It's a good place to start, it's a bad place to end. What do we do with that sorrow? It's a spiritual crossroads. We've only got two options. We can ignore it or we can address it. If we ignore it, we'll get better at ignoring it and eventually we won't be bothered by it. There's a proverb that paints this picture really vividly. As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his foolishness. You've heard that before. Have you ever thought about that? you ever thought about what's happening here? So there's this dog, and he eats something that makes him sick. And what does he do? He returns and eats a second time the thing that made him sick in the first place. You know what's going to happen? He's just going to get more sick. If he eats it a third time, he's just going to get more sick and more sick. Let me give you some examples of what this might look like in our lives. Spending more than I make. I'm spending more than I make. It's creating all kinds of financial stress in my life. You know what I need? I just need a little bit of retail therapy to calm my nerves. I'm spending more than I make. I'm going to go buy a new pair of shoes to help me calm down. I'm really judgmental. And that makes me miserable. I need to find some flaws in somebody else to help me feel better. Watching pornography destroys intimacy with my wife and now I'm lonely. A little porn will cheer me up. I get drunk. And last night I said terrible things to my wife. Now I feel guilty. Better have a drink to calm me down. Or or maybe I'm just angry at the way things are in our world. The state of our country. I'm going to go express my rage on the internet and that's going to make me feel better. See, if we we ignore the sorrow we feel for sin or the guilt or the shame, eventually we won't feel those things and we won't see our sin as sin. And that's when things get really dark. That's when, that's when our sin begins to cripple us. That's when retail therapy turns into unbearable debt. That's when pornography turns into an affair. That's when judging turns into bitterness. And it only goes and gets darker and darker and darker. And church, listen, God doesn't want that for any of us. I know that the sorrow we feel for sin is unpleasant. It would be easier to ignore it, to pretend it never happened, to pretend it's really not that big of a deal. It may be easier to pretend, but it's healing. It's healing to give it to God. It's healing to acknowledge that what we've been doing is wrong. It's healing to go before God and say, God, I am sorry. And please forgive me. Or maybe Jesus said it best: "Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil." Sorrow for sin can lead to greater sin, but it's there to lead to salvation. Let me say that one more time: Sorrow for sin can lead to greater sin. That's not what it's there for. It's there to point you to Jesus. It's there to point you to your need for Jesus. You just have to go to God with it. That's what Saul did. That's why verse 11 tells us he was praying to God. That's what Jonah did too. You know, I didn't read the entire prayer that Jonah prayed earlier. I want you to listen to how it ended. Jonah says, but I will will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise, and I will fulfill all my vows. And this is where he gets it. In verse 9 here. You ready? My salvation comes from the Lord alone. That's what Jonah says. My salvation comes from the Lord alone. That's where sorrow for sin is supposed to point us. To a realization that we can't do it on our own. That salvation comes from the Lord alone. And I want to close today by reading you a parable. It's a parable that Jesus taught. It's about sin and sorrow and salvation. And I think it's a good way to recap what we've studied today. There was a man and he had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of the estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. And a few days later, this this younger son, he packed up all of his belongings, he moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. Now about that time, about the time that his money ran out, there was a famine over all the land, and he began to starve. And he pursued a local farmer to hire him, and the men sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding to the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. And when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired hands have more than enough. I'm dying of hunger. I'm going to go home to my father. I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Would you please take me on as a hired servant? So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming and filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, he embraced him and he kissed him. And he said to him, And, and, and the son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and you am no longer worthy to be called your son, but would you please take me on as a hired servant? But the father said to him, Servants, servants, quick. Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead. But now he has returned to life. He was lost. But now he has been found. So the party began. And meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. And When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house and he asked one of the servants, what's, what's going on? Your brother's back. He was told, uh, and your father has killed the fatted calf and we're celebrating because of his safe return. And the older brother was angry and he wouldn't go in. His father came out and he begged him. but He replied, all these years, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And all that time you never gave me uh, even a young goat for a feast with my friends, yet this, this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes and you celebrate by killing the fatted calf and his father said to him, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate. For your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost. And now he's found. He's found. We all have a little bit of prodigal in us. And we all have a little bit of prodigal that we have to deal with. And we all have to get to that point in our lives where we say, God, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But here's the beauty, we know better. We know what he's going to say. We know that He's not going to send us off into the field to work as a slave. We know that He is going to clothe us in the best garments in the house. He is going to clothe us in righteousness. And He is going to begin a party when we admit our need for Him. You have to deal with the emotion of your sin with the grief, with the pain, with the regret, with the sorrow. And the only thing to do with it is to give it to God. If you need to do that today, I think you should. Right now, we're going to stand together and sing. And if you need to be baptized, we'll do it today.